invite you to open your Bible with me to the book of Romans as we continue in our series. And this morning, the providence of God, Paul is going to be speaking about, uh, it's really an Easter message as Paul talks to us about the power of Christ's life. So we'll look at Romans chapter 5, I'm going to read verse 6 through 11. Doing that, I just want to thank those who are worshiping with us either um, online or in the, in the uh, overflow room. I know it's uh, maybe prefer to be here in the auditorium, but we um, run out of room. So those in the overflow room, thank you for your sacrifice as we rotate through the shepherding groups and those in the foyer as well. Um, God has gathered us together today so uh, we can be taught by His Word. Let's uh, give our attention Romans chapter 5, and we'll read verses 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since there we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's ask the Lord to bless His Word. Father in heaven, we thank you that in the Bible you not only have spoken, but that you continue to speak. And may we hear the word of the gospel today with joy and gladness and understand the love of God for us and the power of Jesus to save us. Father, give us ears to hear, hearts to respond. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, brothers and sisters, um, it is wonderful to think that today all over the world we have um, brothers and sisters in Christ who are celebrating as we are the resurrection of Jesus. On this day we celebrate in a special way uh, the triumph of Christ over death and sin. On the Good Friday, as we call it, uh, we remember the death of Christ and, and in that death Jesus bringing His people out of the bondage of sin. And, uh, but on Sunday, we celebrate the wonderful resurrection of Jesus Christ where He opened the gates to the land of promise. Uh, when Jesus stepped out of the tomb on that first Easter morning, the first bright wave rays of a new age had dawned upon the world. Uh, the world up until that point had been a world under the universal bondage to death. But when Jesus stepped out of the tomb in His glorified resurrected body, he inaugurated a new world in a sense, a world in which death is now a defeated foe for all those who know and love and believe in Jesus. And the resurrected life of Jesus is the power and the pattern for the life of all those who are united to him by faith. The title of my message this morning is Saved by His Life. I take that directly from verse 10, where Paul says, if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, 
Shall we be saved by his life? It's an interesting way of putting it to, to speak of being saved by Jesus' life because we tend to think of salvation in terms of Jesus' death and, and maybe his death alone, right? We can, we can recite the benefits of the death of Christ. If I were to ask you, what, what did Jesus accomplish for you on the cross? Uh, you might say, well, uh, my sins were forgiven. Uh, my, my guilt was washed away. Um, I was reconciled to God. We can, we can recite the benefits of Jesus' death. But what are the benefits of his resurrection? What practical difference does it actually make that Jesus is alive right now, reigning at the right hand of God? That is something that we should know. You see, when the, when the apostles uh, preached the gospel and when they wrote the gospel in their letters, uh, when they talked about Jesus, the Jesus they talked about was not just a crucified Jesus. As wonderful and glorious as that is, but the Jesus they talked about was a crucified and resurrected Jesus. They proclaimed a living Christ. And that is how Jesus himself presents himself. We read it at the beginning of the service. When Jesus introduces himself in the book of Revelation, he does so by saying, I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. The Christ of the gospel, the Jesus of the gospel is the Jesus, yes, who died for my sin, praise God, but was raised to life for my full, complete salvation. In his dying and his living, he accomplishes our salvation and gives us irrefutable reasons for assurance in our salvation. And, and in our text this morning, that's what Paul's really going for. This is a text about assurance. Why does it matter and how can we know and what difference does it actually make that Jesus died and was raised to life? Paul, if you remember, in, in, uh, the, near the end of the book, is, is praise uh, in chapter 15, 13, may the God of, of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Fill you. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, let me ask you, is that, what you're, uh, is that how you would describe your life today? full of joy and peace in believing. Not a little bit, not hints of it or tastes of it here and there, but, but a life full of joy and peace in believing. That's what Paul is after. And, and to do that, he puts before us here in these verses two incredible reasons for joy and hope, and that is the the love of God manifested for us in the cross of Jesus Christ and the power of Christ's resurrected life for our full and final salvation. And those are the two things we're going to look at this morning. First, uh, the proof of God's love in the cross of Christ and then the power of Christ's life in His resurrection. First, then, the proof of God's love. Paul begins our text for, which means he's got a ongoing train of thought here. He's been talking about God's love. Verse 5, God's love has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So, so the Spirit of God is given so that we can experience in truth, in our heart, experience the love of God for us. It's what the Spirit does. And 
And we could ask the question, well, how does he do that? How does he go about that? Well, what the Spirit does, the Spirit has an illuminating ministry. He shines the spotlight on God's truth so that we can see it, that we can receive it and believe it and be full of joy and peace because of it. And and the Spirit shines the spotlight on on the cross of Jesus Christ as the evidence of God's Love. Verse 8, Paul says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The word uh, shows there is a little weak. The Greek term is stronger. It means to make known or publicly prove or convincingly demonstrate. I don't know about you, but when I was a little guy in, in, uh, in grade school, I remember passing notes to my friends, even every once in a while if I screwed up the courage, uh, pass a little note to my girlfriend or what I hoped would be my girlfriend, and I like you, right? And you, boy, you just pour your heart into that and you send it over there and, and hope for the best. Um, well, that's one, that's one demonstration of love, but, but if someone hires an airplane and uh, you're... And, you know, has that thing right across the sky in these great big screaming red letters, I love you, exclamation point, exclamation point. That's a different demonstration. And Paul is saying that's what God has done. He's, in, in the most amazing way, he has demonstrated, publicly displayed and proven his incredible love for us. And he's done it in the cross. This is the meaning of the cross. There is no deeper reason for the cross of Jesus Christ than the love of God. If you were to stand at the foot of the cross and and you're seeing Jesus of Nazareth hanging there, and if you'd ask the question, why is he there? Why is Jesus dying? The answer is love. Why is the Son of God being crucified, being crushed? The answer is is love, the love of God for sinful man. That's why. There's not a deeper answer to the question. It's, It's pure, incredible, infinite love that God is displaying for sinners in the death of Jesus. The Apostle John says the same in 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. My question is, why is, let's just dig a little deeper and say, why is the cross the ultimate manifestation of God's love? What makes the cross the definitive proof and the definitive display of of the love of God. And, and, and we could answer that by remembering that the cross and Christ on the cross is God's gift. God so loved he gave, John 3, 16. So what love does. It gives gifts. God so loved he gave. And, and, and the, the, the love of a gift or the, the, the way that a, a gift reveals love is in different ways. You could, you could look at it as a value, how, how much does the, did the gift cost? What's the value of the gift? You could look at it from another direction and say, well, how worthy are the recipients of the gift? You could look at it another way. How beneficial is the gift? If I give you, uh, if I give you a candy bar, that has a certain 
benefit of some sort. If I give you a kidney, we're at a whole different level. And, and so those are the ways we'll look at this, as Paul points out here in the text. What is, first of all, the value of the gift? Well, we would recognize that the greater the value, the greater the display of love. There's a difference between a $10 gift um, or a $10,000 gift. And Paul wants us to see the value of the gift. Whom did God give? Well, he, he tells us the Christ died for us. The Christ died, verse 6 and 8. The, the Messiah, the promised one of God, chosen by the Father before the foundation of the world to redeem God's elect. But in verse 10, we really get to the, the heart of the issue where Paul reminds us that we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Now, we're used to that language. We've heard that maybe a, a, a thousand times if you've heard it once. But I'd just like you to pause and, and think about the world of that day particularly. The world of Jesus' day uh, was a world where the greatest possession a man could have on earth was a son. And the more, the better. Sons were your legacy. Sons were your glory. Sons were your crown. Daughters were precious and beautiful, but, but sons were the treasure. Nothing mattered more. And, and because that was true, nothing mattered more than an only son. If you had just one son, all of your legacy and glory and crown comes to rest on him, right? All the treasure is contained in him. And the greatest tragedy then that could happen to a man is to lose your only son. There, there, aren't, there are not any close seconds. To lose, your, to lose any son is a tragedy. To lose your only son is it's just unspeakable and incalculable. It would be vastly better to lose your own life than to lose the life of your only son. Everyone understands this. And yet that's who God the Father gave. God so loved the world that He gave His only son. I mean, it's, it's breathtaking. What more could God the Father give? You see, there is not a greater treasure to be found in all of heaven than Jesus, the precious, eternal Son of God. The, and, and so it's easy to see, you see, how the love of God the Father is publicly proven and displayed in the infinite value of, the, of His Son given to die for us. And that's the second aspect of the value of the gift, the unworthiness of the, of the recipient. You see, there, there could be lots of reasons to give gifts to worthy people. You could give them because it would just be impolite, or not impolite, it would be somehow wrong not to acknowledge the, 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 the respect and honor and value and worth of that individual. It could be um, you, you give a gift just because it's decorum. You, someone invites you over to their home, you bring a little gift, maybe a bottle of wine. It's, it's just socially what you do. Lots of reasons to give gifts to worthy people. 
There are not many reasons at all to give gifts to unworthy people. The the only one that actually makes sense is, is love. That you love them. To whom did God give his most precious gift? This is astonishing. Paul uses four terms in these verses to describe them. The first is the weak. You see that in verse 6. While we were still weak, Christ uh, died for the ungodly. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Again, the Greek word is a little bit stronger. The the word weak, it it means helpless. It's Weakness to the fullest, most hopeless possible degree. There, there's, a, there's a certain weakness where you could say, I, I cannot lift this heavy a weight. And then there's a weakness where you say, I, I don't have enough strength to breathe. This is weakness at its most complete, full, helpless, hopeless degree. And Paul uses that to describe people when it comes to making things right between them and God. That we live by the power of God. God is the one who brings us into the world. God is the one who ordains the number of our days. God is the one who sustains us. In Him we live and move and have our being. The reason that we exist today is because God is keeping us existing. But but we're at we're alienated from God because of our sin. And we cannot make that, we cannot make that right. We're, we're powerless to make that right. And so the, God sent his son for the weak. To those who are utterly helpless, unable to, to free themselves from our bondage to sin and to rescue ourselves and, and make ourselves right with God. God sent his son to the weak, the ones who needed it the most. Secondly, God sent his son to the ungodly, the, one who's, the ones who deserved it the least. Ungodly people, if we think of ungodly people, you might think of, you know, the really, really bad guys, the guys who show up on your evening news and, uh, and they're, going, they're headed to prison, right? The ungodly. That's not how Paul thinks of the term. Ungodly people are just everyday normal people like you and me who by nature live on God's earth live with God's sunshine and go home and eat food that God's provided us and, and live in homes that God's allowed us to live in. Um, and, and we completely ignore God. He's just not part of the equation. So, so in Romans 1 verse 18 and following, Paul defines ungodliness as people who do not honor God as God or give thanks to Him. In the minds of most people, that does not seem like that big a deal. In Paul's mind, that's the definition of ungodly. It's a life that does not have reference to God. It's a life where where you are not worshiping and thanking God. Just think of that. Have you thanked God for the sunshine today? And if not, if you never thank God... That's an ungodly life. He gave you the gift. You owe him thanks. You see, it's a a very bad thing to be unthankful. And and Christ died, Paul says, for the unthankful people, the ungodly people, the people who suppress the truth about God. They They know there is a God, but they suppress the truth about God in unrighteousness. 
And so we've offended God and we deserve the judgment of God and yet in this the love of God is made manifest in that Jesus died for the ungodly. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it's the, oh, I have the quote right here. Romans 5, 6 is one of the greatest verses in the whole Bible. I do not hesitate to assert that there is no greater statement of the love of God than in that verse. Christ died for the ungodly. Praise God, that means he died for me. And Paul goes to that in, in, uh, when he, in verse 8 when he uses the third term, sinners. So weak and helpless and now sinners. God shows his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I love, I love that truth and that it, Paul wants us to know that Jesus didn't die for us, for you, after you cleaned yourself up. Jesus didn't wait for you to make some amends and make some improvements or at least some promises. It's not, when, it's not when Jesus died for you. He died when you were in your full-throated rebellion against God. When you did not want anything to do with God. You loved your sin. You loved yourself. You loved living for yourself and building your, your life with no reference to God. You were happy about it. You see, again, sin, what does it mean to be a sinner? And we can think, well, sinners are bad people and people who do bad things. And, well, that's partly true. But sin in the Bible, to be a sinner is to be in a, it's, it's a status. And the status in reference to God is you are alienated from God. You are, your sin has separated you from God. You are um, under the curse of God's law because you've violated God's law. That, that's what it means to be a sinner. So you're in bondage to the power of sin and the perversion of sin under the curse of the law. But while you were there, and, and happily so, God showed his love for you in this. His son, Jesus, died for you. Christ died for us. And in case we miss the point, Paul highlights it, the astonishing nature of this by by contrast, comparison in verse 7 and 8. Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. Right? It, would be, it would be amazing enough if someone were willing to die for a deserving person, a righteous person. That would be astonishing. But the greatest love on earth, right? remember Jesus says, greater love is no man than to give his life for his friend. That, that's the greatest love on earth. But heaven knows a greater love, the love that gives the life of his son for sinners. That's the love of heaven. That's, that's the love with which God has loved us. And then, and then Paul nails it even further when he refers to us as while we were enemies, verse 10. That's the fourth term, weak and ungodly and sinners and enemies. That just, that just means, you see, that in our natural state, in our sin, we've rejected God and we've refused to love and worship Him and to serve Him, obey Him. We've allied ourselves with the devil. And why would, why would anybody give a gift to an enemy? I mean, maybe to the unworthy, but enemies? En enemies, we, nobody, nobody gives loving gifts to enemies. And, and yet God, that's exactly what He did. While we were his enemies, right, Christ died for us. 
John Stott says the unique majesty of God's love lies in the, in the combination of three factors, namely that Christ, uh, that when Christ died for us, God was giving himself, A, even to the horror of sin bearing on the cross and doing so for his undeserving enemies. Christ died for us while we were enemies. That's astonishing love. And what did it accomplish? What's the value? What's the benefit? Is it a candy bar or a kidney? Well, it's, it's the most amazing thing possible. Paul lists two reasons. Verse 9, since we have now been justified through his blood. Verse 10, we were reconciled to God. You see, these are two accomplished facts as Paul speaks of it, and they address both the legal and the relational aspects of salvation. If you are an orphan child and uh, someone wants to adopt you, <clears throat> it's not enough that they, that they come and say, we love you and we want to have you come into our home. That's wonderful. Praise God. Someone has noticed you and someone loves you and someone wants you to come and be part of their family. It's so precious. But they can't then just put you in the car and take you home. There's a legal process that has to be followed, has to be honored. Well, it's the same with salvation. And we see both of those aspects accomplished by Christ. In Christ, we have been justified by His blood. That's the legal aspect. That's God legally, officially declaring that we are acquitted of all sin, innocent of all sin, because of the righteousness of Christ given to us freely. And by, and by that verdict, God the judge, just like a judge in a courtroom in, a, in an adoption case, God the judge of heaven declares us to be made right with him and to be righteous in his sight, and thus we are free to be part of his family. But the God the judge doesn't just make the declaration. He comes down from the bench and he takes us by the hand and he brings us to his home. We are reconciled to God the judge. Stott says, God as judge has pronounced us righteous and God as father has welcomed us home. You see, friends, the greatest loss in our sin was loss of communion with God. We, we were estranged from the God who made us and the God who, who loves us. And the greatest gift in, the, in, in salvation in the gospel is the gift of fellowship with God that we're, we're invited to commune with Him when we are promised His love. And the joy, the joy of a Christian, when Paul talks about that, we're going to be full, full of, of joy and peace and believing, the joy of a Christian is, is knowing that God, the God who made me, the God who made this whole world, loves me. And He loved me not by just telling me about it. He loved me by sending His only Son to die in my place and accomplish my salvation. God loves me. Friend, do you believe that? Because you hear the language and, and you can mouth the words, I'm sure, but, but do you actually believe that, that God the Father loves you like this? Loves you to this degree to send His most precious treasure, Jesus Christ, to rescue you from your sin and, and to make you His forever child? That's, that's the message. That, that's what Paul is saying. That's what God is saying through his word. It, it's God. He, he could not possibly communicate this more clearly or more directly. It, but but there's a hardness. There's a, there's a cynicism in our heart at times. We hear it, but we, 
We're not willing to receive it. And if, and if that's you this morning, I just invite you to just trust the Word. Put your confidence in what it actually says. God is writing this all over the sky. His love for you in the cross of Jesus Christ. God loves you. He loves you. The hymn writer says, Shall we still dread God's displeasure? Who to save freely gave his most cherished treasure? To redeem us, he has given his own son from the throne of his might in heaven. God loves you. But that's not all. Jesus Christ is alive to save you to the uttermost. You see, the Christian life is bookended by infinite love and eternal life. And, and we'll look at, and then secondly at the power of Christ's life. Paul says in verse 10, if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. And Paul uses that phrase twice, saved by his life here in verses 9 and 10. You see, friends, the wonder of the gospel is not simply that you have been saved past tense in the death of Christ and, in, and you're coming to faith. Praise God, that's true. But the wonder of the gospel is that you are also being saved, present tense, and shall be saved, future tense. You can see the being saved in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 2, where Paul says, Brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you, the gospel in which you stand and by which you are being saved. Present tense. God is saving you right now, right? As, as the gospel is proclaimed and as you believe it, God is saving. Present tense. It's a very important thing to remember. And here's why. <clears throat> if you think of your salvation primarily as a past event, either uh, the, the moment you came to Christ or the moment Christ died for you on the cross, if the gospel is just the news that you have been saved, past tense, there's going to be many times in your life where it doesn't feel like it. The reality of your sin, the trials and heartaches of this life, the doubts and fears that you maybe wrestle with, can make it so that even though you believe that you have been saved, it doesn't feel like you've been saved. It just feels hard. It just feels hard. And you wonder if you're missing out on something. Because you see, the reality of what Christ accomplished for us in the past can feel like it's not making much difference in my present. And because it's not making much difference, it doesn't feel like it's making much difference in my present as I'm battling with sin, as I'm dealing with, with, with trials and, and wrestling with doubts. It can leave me with fears for my future. And there's all kinds of Christians who live exactly in that arena. They believe in a past event but they're struggling in the present reality and have doubts and fears for the future. But you see, the gospel is more than just you have been saved. The gospel is that you are being saved, that every single hard thing in your life is part of God's way of saving you and sanctifying you and preparing you for glory. See, see that? Then the hard makes sense. 
And then the, 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 the sin that you're wrestling with, well, yeah, I'm, I'm going to wrestle with sin. I'm not, I'm not glorified yet. I've, I've got a category for wrestling with sin as a saved Christian. And beyond that, you see, the gospel is not just that I'm being saved, but I shall be saved. I shall be saved. I have a future hope. And that's what Paul wants to see here. Jesus shall save us. We shall be saved, future tense. Saved from what? Well, he tells us, verse 9. Since there we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. From the wrath of God. You see, Paul is looking forward to the future, to the day of judgment. Brothers and sisters, there is actually a day that God has determined, just like he determined this day, and that day is going to dawn just like this day has dawned, but you're not going to make it to noon. Because suddenly, the skies are going to open up. And the angels of God are going to descend, and there's going to be a loud trumpet blast, and suddenly, irrevocably, you are going to be in the presence of Jesus, the Son of God. And he's coming as a judge to judge the living and the dead. That's what Paul is looking towards. And on that day of judgment, Jesus will... He tells, tells us what he's going to do. I'm going to separate the sheep from the goats. I'm going to say to some, welcome, enter into everlasting life and bliss and peace. Welcome home. And I'm going to say to the others, depart from me. I never knew you. And they are going to go into a horror that you can't even imagine, where there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's what Jesus says. That's not, that's not some scary story that some religious guy came up with or some preacher uh, is uses just to try to manipulate you. That's what Jesus says. And you are going to stand on that day. Every single one of you is going to stand there on that day, and I am too. It's going to be a terrifying day for those who are not in Christ. So the book of uh, the prophet Nahum uh, says, Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. In the book of Revelation, you read about that day, and you read about the kings uh, of, and all the important people and all the, those who are lost crying out to the hills to fall on them and cover them, trying to escape the wrath of Jesus, the wrath of the Lamb. And friends, uh, as certainly as you are here today, you are going to be there on that day, and you will either, you will either be more terrified than you've ever imagined as you realize that, that you have ignored this God all of your life, and now you are headed for an eternity without Him. Either that will be your experience or you will be dancing and singing and weeping with joy because Jesus has saved you from the wrath of God. That's what Paul's talking about. That's what Jesus has done. I, uh, I read a story, um, maybe some of you others have read it by Charles Martin, uh, Water from My Heart. Great, great book. I, I really enjoyed it. And he just talks about uh, there, uh, uh, something that actually happened in the epilogue at the end, uh, a... Um, a Christian uh, preacher, pastor, um, social worker in Nicaragua. There was a there was a torrential rains, and uh, there was a crater, a volcanic crater, hot, hot, 
lake, and that lake, because of all the water, uh, breached, and this huge 30-foot wall of, of steaming hot ash mud water a mile wide comes flowing down the mountain, just destroying villages, everything in its path. And this, this man had, had um, gone out and was walking down the path, and there was a well in the, in the village, a concrete well, and, and as they saw this, this wall of mud, heard it thundering down, they stepped behind the well, and it all just went right by him. And they were saved. And that will be the experience for everyone who's in Jesus Christ. Right? He's the rock and we just stand behind him, and the wrath flows around, and Jesus says to us, welcome home. See, Paul wants us to know that because that makes, that, that fills you with joy and peace. That means that your present, you see, is, 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 is God at work saving you. You're being saved now, and you shall be saved then. That means that you are saved to the uttermost. And that this life, in this life, God is preparing you for that, so that we are not only saved by Jesus' death, we shall be saved, Paul says, much more by his life. That you cannot be lost if you are in Christ. God does not and will not change his mind. Those he justifies, remember he says in Romans chapter 8, 30, those he justifies, he also what? Glorifies. Those he justifies, he glorifies. Every single one of them. Not, there's not a single one lost somewhere in between justification and glorification. When God declares you righteous in his sight, by faith in Jesus Christ, not because of anything you've done, faith in Jesus, God says, righteous in my sight, that person's going to be glorified. That's what Paul says. And since you've been reconciled to God, no longer an enemy but now a son, then how much more will you be saved by the life of Jesus? Praise God, friends, for the life of Jesus. By his death, we have peace with God. By his life, we have the assurance that that peace will never be lost. By his death, we stand in grace. By his life, we know that grace will lead us home. Jesus accomplished by his death our salvation, but Jesus' life means that we will certainly receive every blessing and eternal benefit of it. We cannot be lost, not if Jesus is alive. Not if Jesus is alive. Why should cross and trial grieve me? Christ is near with his cheer. Never will he leave me. Who can rob me of the heaven that God's son for my own to my faith has given? No one can. That's the benefit, friends, of this blessed Easter morning. Jesus' resurrection ensures that we too will be raised in glory with him. And friend, my prayer this morning is that you know that to be true for you. Do you know that to be true for you? If you do not, Jesus invites you today, come unto me, right? All who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Jesus invites you today. If you are a sinner, Jesus wants you to know while you were still a sinner, he died for you. If you are ungodly, if you are weak, if you sense that you have been alienated from God, Jesus wants you to know that you're exactly the person that he gave his life to save. And all that's required is that you confess your sin and believe in him. May God grant it to each and every one of us. Amen. Well, God, our Father in heaven, I thank you for the life of Jesus, the life that assures our life, our eternal life, and 
And Father, I thank you that today Jesus Christ is at work in the hard circumstances of our, of our day-to-day life, in the sins that we battle with. He's at work in the trials that we, that we face. He's at work in the doubts and even fears that we wrestle with. Jesus, you are at work calling us to believe, strengthening the muscle of faith. And you want us to know, Jesus, that by your life we too shall be saved. Saved from the wrath of God. Saved to enter in on that final day into the glory and bliss of heaven. Oh God, I pray that we would know this to the marrow of our bones. That we would have this certain conviction that our life, no matter the circumstance, might be full of joy and peace in believing. Father, just wash away all cynicism, all skepticism and and doubt, oh God, give us the grace to believe this and then to rejoice in its wonderful truth. Oh Lord, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We pray it in your name. Amen.